Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA. And today's guest, as we were talking before the show, is a little bit outside the industry, but I think uh, right on target for our audience. Uh, I'd love to welcome to the show Major General Todd McCaffrey. Sir, how are you? Hey, BJ, thanks. It's great to be with you. I appreciate the opportunity. It's great to have you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch on your bio here real quick for the audience. Uh, Major General McCaffrey is a retired U.S. Army Major General with over 34 years of service, culminating as the Chief of Staff of U.S. Africa Command. Kind of curious about how that, that job was, <laughs> sir. Uh, after his military retirement, Todd was the University of South Carolina Senior Director of Strategic Partnership for Government and Military Programs, where he focused on assisting the university integrate and expand its portfolio of defense and other national security-related research efforts. Uh, he is involved in a number of things uh, through McCaffrey Consulting, his consulting firm. Uh, he is involved in some nonprofit work. He is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Go Army, beat Navy. Go Army. Uh, and uh, has a master's degree in economics from the Colorado School of Mines and national security studies from U.S. Army War College. And he lives in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, so before the show, we were talking and little bit outside the industry, you know, quote, architect, engineering, construction industry. And I said to uh, General McCaffrey, I'm in the people industry. And I think that's where this conversation is going to go, sir. You've got a ton of leader leadership experience. Tell us a little bit about your journey from West Point many moons ago to, uh, to U.S. Africa Command to uh, University of South Carolina and, and kind of the transition that you were mentioning uh, that you're kind of in right now. Yeah, BJ, great. Thanks. Well, first of all, thanks very much for having me on. I certainly do appreciate the opportunity. Um, yeah, we share a common background at West Point. It's a, it's a, it's a great institution to, to hail from. You know, the funny thing is um, my first choice, though, was the Naval Academy. It's funny, as I grew up <laughs> as a kid, wanted to go to the Naval Academy, never got in, went to college for a year. Somebody told me I should apply to West Point. I did, and probably the best decision I ever made. And frankly, uh, it's like I've always been beat Navy since then. Um, so two, I, two quick comments. I have yeah. to hit you there. I also, being from the Philadelphia area, for some reason, we're all, we all get pulled down to the Naval Academy for, for class trips, I guess, because it's on the water and teachers want to go south and not north to West Point. So I also grew up, I thought I was going to be a Navy SEAL. I was a swimmer. So I was like, from I, probably third grade, I thought for sure I was going to Naval Academy. A teacher I had was a uh, 06 in the, in the reserves, and she said, you know, not many people get to commission as a Navy SEAL. You're, you're going to have to be top of your class if you end up going to Naval Academy to, to be a SEAL. Otherwise, you're going to end up on a boat. All of a sudden, West Point became the number one choice. <laughs> it's like, there's no way I'm guaranteeing that. Hey, you know, not a dissimilar uh, event in my place. Anyway, wound up at West Point. Um, I graduated there in 1986 and uh, spent my career as an infantry officer, which, uh, you know, is all about people. And quite frankly, I was drawn to the infantry for a couple of things. You know, one, it was a people business. Second is a challenging field to be in. It was physical. It required, you know, uh, grit, if you will. Um, and I was very fortunate to have a, had a great group of folks I worked with in my career. Wonderful non-commissioned officers, incredible soldiers. 
Um, I married a girl who I met up in upstate New York, and we've been married over 30 years now. And uh, she has been probably the reason I stayed in the Army as long as I did, because as you know well, the Army is a family business. Um, you know, like a lot of industry work, to be satisfied in, in an organization, and a culture, and in an industry, you really got to have your family on board. And I've been very fortunate to have my, my wife uh, of th over 30 years on board. Um, we raised three wonderful kids in the military. Um, my oldest son is a captain in the Army at Fort Bliss, Texas. I've got a daughter who's an ICU nurse in Roanoke, Virginia. And my youngest son, who graduated last year from Virginia Tech, is heading off to medical school this summer. So we're very proud of them. And, and quite frankly, their success, I think, is attributed to the environment we had in the Army for so many years. Um, I was a trainer most of my time through the Army, spent a lot of time leading organizations, you know, the standard things you're familiar with, the infantry organizations from platoon all the way through the brigade combat team level where I deployed them to, to Iraq a couple of times. Um, and then came back and found, found up, you know, my last eight years in the Army, I was, a, I was a general officer. And I spent that time at the strategic level of the organization, the institution. Um, and at that point, it was about how we make decisions. It was about the outcomes of those decisions, about setting the conditions for units and organizations to be able to, to grow. And I found that was really fulfilling. Um, I was very fortunate to finish my career, as you mentioned, in Stuttgart, Germany, which is the headquarters for U.S. Africa Command, which is the U.S. Combatant Command responsible for all U.S. military operations and support on the continent of Africa a place I could barely spell when I went to Stuttgart, um, <laughs> but really found myself drawn to what Africa can be and the, and the great economic and, and, and cultural vitality Africa has and the importance it has for this country. So it was a great, great way to culminate the career. And then, as you mentioned, I transitioned after that. I, I found myself, um, an old boss of mine reached out to me who was working at the University of South Carolina. He was the president at the time. A guy you might remember, uh, Lieutenant General Retired Bob Caslin, a former superintendent at West Point. Um, one of my mentors and, and, and a hero of mine and asked me to come to South Carolina. And uh, I stood up an office called the Office of Military Affairs and did that for about a year plus. Um, President Kazan left the university. I, I decided to leave shortly thereafter. And since then, I've had a great opportunity to do some independent consulting, frankly, back in the national security space where I work with companies and organizations that are oriented on common themes of national security support to the U.S. Army and support to soldiers in the Joint Force. So um, I've been having a great time doing that for the last year plus and, uh, and really enjoy it. So good. Yeah, I look forward to chatting about a number of those things. It sounds like great, uh, a great, some great areas to explore. The, the place I want to jump into, I, I mean, I have a lot of curious questions. Just, you know, AFRICOM was getting stood up at the time, and, yeah. and I'm sure there's plenty of leadership uh, challenges that you went through. Uh, but the place I really I, I want to spend some time is we talked about the transition. And yeah. in some ways, you know, you're still transitioning and you've got to experience, I guess, a little bit of a, a culture shock going from military to academia, now academia to um, private sector. And, and you're probably getting to interact with a bunch of different organizations uh, and how one, how, how the transition's going, uh, because I think. There's a lot of junior officers. There's a lot of enlisted folks that go through this transition and they struggle. And the number one thing I want to, I want to hear from you, I hope is that it's an equal struggle at the, at the topmost executive level, just because there's so much change going on. Uh, so tell us about how that transition has been and where you are and what, what you're learning. 
Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, you know, I would argue this is not unique to the military. This is transition in any industry. I, you know, the, the, the military is, a, is another industry sector in many ways. And so transition from the military to any other industry, I think, is, a, is an industry transition that is not uncommon to anybody who's in any industry sector if they move to a different area. So, you know, from the banking industry to, 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 to any other series, I think the transition process is the same. And it's rooted because as we grow up in an industry, and, and the military may be relatively unique because it's both an industry and a profession. And I think there's a profound difference about a profession and what it brings than just a normal industry business sector. But when you're, when you're grounded in a profession like the military or like medicine or the law, I think there's some unique issues. And, and you're, in, you're imbued in an industry culture from the time you enter that. The unique thing about the military is because it doesn't allow for lateral entry. You really come in as a junior level soldier or a junior officer and you grow up in that industry. And I had to do that. I spent 34 years in the Army. Um, in an organization that really doesn't allow for lateral entry, which is not the case in many industries. And I'm finding out that now as a civilian. I mean, lateral entry is very common and frankly, very healthy for many industries. Um, but as you go through transitions, I, I would offer there's three things that I've found that you deal with. And, and there's three broad kind of questions you have to ask yourself. You know, what are my objectives in terms of location? You know, where, where do I want to be in terms of geography? Where do I want to operate? Where do I want to live? There is an issue of, you know, what is my passion? What is my vocation? What do I want to do? And then finally, there's the issue of compensation. What do I want to make? And, and that's a triangle that I think everybody has to balance out in transition. And I certainly have had to do that. The military has to balance this idea of, of I call them the shuns, location, you know, vocation and compensation. And balancing the shuns is, is challenging because it's rare that you can find where you can, you know, kind of maximize all three. In many cases, you're trying to, you know, take a tug and a pull here. However, what I've found within that process that, you know, while compensation and location are important, frankly, it boils down for me about vocation. You know, what are you passionate about? What drives you? Where is your worth? Um, and, and what I've found at the base of that is tied to this issue of organizational culture. What's the formative, formative culture that you go into? So I left the military. I came to higher education. Um, Frank, I found the, that the culture in higher education was different than the military. The value structure was different, not in terms of um, what many people view as kind of the political kind of, cult, you know, top level kind of culture war. But that's not the issue. Right. It's about how decisions are made. It's about, you know, where equities are in terms of decision processes and governance. Um, that's a much different industry, if you will, than it was in the military. And so what I've what I counsel fellow soldiers and now civilians who are transitioning is think real hard about the culture you're walking into and what, and where do you, what are your cultural objectives? Where does it fit your value system and your culture? Um, and make sure that that's the first and foremost. And if you can accept that, then I think you can be very successful because it really does start with having a cultural a standard aligned framework that you go into. And I found that is a, I'm continuing to go through that process as now I advise companies um, as a consultant. Uh, and I, you know, I think in many ways, before you get issues of profit and loss and all those kind of other things, you really got to start off with the people because people build organizational culture and organizational culture sets the conditions by which any organization is grow is going to grow and, and, and be successful. And if you don't get the culture piece straight first, it's really hard to kind of get to the next level of things because you don't have things like trust. You don't have things like common and shared values. And I found that's a, that's an evolving process for me. So it's been really great. I've enjoyed it. It's, um, 
but it's been very self-reflective as well for the last couple of years. I, I think that's the number one thing I hear is how self-reflective it is. And as you're talking about this, I wrote, I wrote down the shuns, location, compensation, vocation, and you talked about profession. Uh, and I think profession and vocation go together. So I'll, I'll jump to that. The Army, and I wasn't thinking about this, only asks you your preferences for location and right. maybe. And compensation is just structured based on, on rank and years of service. So they take those things off the table and there's all kinds of arguments around, you know, the compensation structure and, and should it be different, should it not? But I think it works because then everybody is focused on just doing their job, right? The profession of arms. And the part of vocation, profession, and what I'll call uh, really, I think, is organizational culture is, is the organization about mission, meaning, and impact, or is the or is it about money and transactional behavior, right? And you, you talked about culture and, and talking about culture before you get to P&L, right? The business model's got to work, got it. You got to make money, got it. But are you focused on a mission and a meaning bigger than yourself? And, and we just talked, I just got back from reserves. I still feel tied to that mission of the, of the military when I put the uniform on, right? And that's indoctrinated in us and we're serving something greater than ourselves. And I think that that's the biggest challenge I give to veterans as they transition into private sector is no matter what level you're being brought in to lead at, you are probably getting a lateral transfer. You do bring leadership skills. You do bring an understanding of like winning and mission-oriented cultures. That's the value that you get to bring is to, is to focus on creating mission and meeting for the team that you're on or the people around you. And I wanted to get your, your reaction to that. No, no, I absolutely agree. You know, your comment, on, I, I, I was struck by something I reminded when you said I thought compensation. It's something I learned, you know, a thousand years ago at West Point in a leadership course. And it talked about money, you know, money being a, there's, you know, you could be, you're, you've got motivators, you've got satisficers. The reality in money for most people is that you've got to have a minimum level. It's a, it reaches a, a kind of a threshold of a satisficer. But money is rarely a motivator. I mean, it can be. But, motiv- but what motivators are the things that bring value to, to an organization. And the military, as you well know, and, and other industries as well, where, where you, don't have a lot, you don't have a lot of levers to be able to use with it, throwing money at problems. You, you motivate by other things. You, you empower individuals with more authority or decision-making ability. You, you know, even things as kind of, you know, Napoleon talked about little pieces of ribbon and cloth being put on uniforms, awards is a, is a motivator. So this issue about satisf- being satisfied by a sufficient amount of money being versus being motivated by it, I think is an important criteria for any organization, particularly in the civilian sector, where you don't have some of the kind of the, the, the wraparound piece that the military provides. So, you know, as you're in an industry sector and you want to keep these days, particularly when, when, you're, when the labor market is so challenged, you're trying to keep employees on board. I mean, and they're fleeing laterally to other organizations. The challenge becomes how do you how do you instill people a desire to stay on a team, to stay on an organization? And I would argue it's generally not money, because you you can throw more money at people, and they'll certainly take it, and they won't complain about it. But you can throw all the money at an employee you want. But if you don't have a good organizational culture, you don't have a good environment that makes them feel empowered, it makes them feel worthwhile, and makes them feel valued. They're going to go someplace where they find those motivators. And so this issue about motive, being motivated to stay, I think, is a key piece. And I think it fits any transition 
as well, whether it's military to the civilian space or whether it's in, inside you know, c- the civilian industry spaces. Um, but I thought a lot about that, and it's, it's, it's really an interesting piece because my entire career, money was rarely a, a lever I could pull to keep an employee or a soldier or a sailor or an airman or marine on board my team or to stay valued, stay high performing. It really required other levers, other tools, and those generally got to the areas of empowerment. It got to the issues of respect. It got to the issues of, of, of feeling valued for what they bring to the team. Um, and those I found in my time are much more powerful levers than just money alone. But I think often people just defer to money because it's an easy metric to track. And it's an easy lever to pull, but it's not necessarily the right lever that's going to keep you keep a team together for the long term, and certainly bring organizational value for the long term for a, for an organization that's trying to grow and really to make an impact. It's it, it is that it to your point, it's the most obvious in a business sense because you can tie P and L and performance to some KPI together. Like, all right, if you do this and you get us this result, we'll we'll be able to share you know, basically profit share in some way, shape or form to somebody. Um, why, what have you seen since transitioning? Uh, and you don't have to name names or anything like yeah. that, but um, in the adoption of prioritizing culture over compensation. Yeah, it's great. So I, I, I recently did some work with a company that was putting together a proposal for a government contract, and it was in the IT space. And it was really interesting to watch that team. Um, what I found, you know, what really was impressive about this team was, you know, not only were they really smart, and they were operating distributed. I mean, it wasn't a function of COVID. They were operating distributed because that's the model this company operates on. They, they tend to operate, they come together when required. But what really impressed me about this, the way they operated, was the value they placed on each of their each of the members of the team you know anyone on the team could come could come up with an idea it was accepted it was batted around it was it was valued it was very clear that the people on that team were driven by their that what they felt was being valued team members moving the organization forward i have no idea how much they're being compensated it really didn't make any difference but what was really struck me was the sense that this team operated based on kind of shared values shared empowerment um, shared ideas of, of feeling they, you know, they were contributing something to the overall effort, regardless of their position in the organization. Um, and, and I found that to be really powerful and, and frankly, I've been really impressed to kind of be around that as kind of a guy on the outside watching, watching it occur on the inside because it's exactly the kind of things that for my entire career in uniform we are striving to achieve. And I was watching this, you know, relatively, um, oh, you know, very agile company. I don't mean agile in the software development process, although they were, a, they did IT and software development, but an agile organization, their ability of allowing employees to, uh, to really contribute. And frankly, the issue came down, BJ, in many cases to empowerment. Um, I, I'll give you one comment because I think it may be germane to this. When I was in the army, I came with this idea this, the realization I came to is that empowerment is a wonderful quality you want to get to. You want to empower your employees. You want to empower your subordinates to, to, do, to be, make decisions on their own. To do that well, though, you've got to establish kind of disciplined processes. You've got to establish structure and, and you know, and, and, and not only military discipline, but I mean discipline and decision-making processes, discipline and, and approach. And once you have that, you can empower the heck out of an organization and they'll make you've heard the term discipline initiative, they'll make good decisions. And really that creates wonderful initiative in an organization. That's what drives the organization forward. 
Um, but it all starts with this idea of having enough discipline and structure. This company I was working with, they were doing that very, very well. And it was kind of fun to be around and watch. It's, I mean, I'm listening and, and hopefully the audience is too. Just I'm reflecting on where we are as a company and, and we're a pretty small, nimble company. Uh, we've grown from about 20 to 40 people in the last three years. And, and the, the entire effort I'm, I'm focused on is creating, you know, one, the discipline process, right? So that there's some level of predictable results and then allowing the team to be empowered. And, and where PNL comes in is, you know, Uncle Sam was always paying the paychecks on, on Fridays when I had soldiers. So it was, it was a little bit easier to be that leader because the whole system was built to allow a platoon leader to be a platoon leader and squad leaders to be squad leaders. And, and it really just became a people business. There was no PNL at the end of the day. In, in my world now, it's, it's how are we investing our next dollar of profit to continue to build that? Knowing that we've got market conditions we're up against every day from a from a PL standpoint, whether you know, are you winning work or are you losing work? Are you, you know, are you getting that next client or are you not? And I I think, you know, I'm having fun. And I, I just said this last week. When I think of it as fun, it's fun, right? These are these are challenging leadership decisions. When I think of them as stressful, it's stressful. So I try to err on the side of, of keeping it fun and knowing that we're, we're building this for the long term. Uh, but as I was talking to um, one of the colonels I was walk, working with up at West Point, she sent me a quote and it was by Stanley McChrystal. And it was about an intoxicating culture in a positive way. And the quote goes, uh, the constant flow in information, sense of inclusion in a worthy mission, and deep relationships that developed created an atmosphere described by one operator as intoxicating. To me, the ideal workplace is less than a place than an environment and an attitude. It's an ecosystem in which members share levels of trust and common purpose that provide a foundation upon which individuals and teams are empowered with information and enough authority to use it. It's not about free ice cream and dry cleaning. What's free is information that flows across the team to where it is most useful. The price of admission is a willingness to collaborate even when there is no apparent transactional advantage. It is a faith-based approach to operating, not with, no con not with connection to religion. The faith lies in a belief that we are all advantaged to share our wisdom and capabilities to address the things we must do. I, yeah, I thought that I mean, was it, such it, a powerful quote. It is. And it gets right to this issue of motivators. I mean, those are the kind of things that motivate. And I would offer this, you know, the, the military, and this, I, I take this, you know, the military often from the, the civilian world takes a, a rap that they're not involved in PL. I would, I would beg to differ. I mean, profit and loss in the military is that there's a different measure for that, but, but there very much is profit and loss. I mean, at the end of the day, we all know when it comes down to it, really comes down to the profit and loss is the profit and loss that you have from soldiers on battlefields, and you never want to get there. But the fact of the matter is organizational profit and loss in a military piece is less about dollars and cents than it is about readiness. It's about, it's about organizational cohesion. It's those kind of things, which very much are measures of profit. And the loss piece comes when, when in terms of an organization is not performing to par or soldiers or sailors, airmen, and marines who are not performing to standard. Um, so it is a different metric, of course, but the, but the principle of P&L applies. I recognize it's a different kind of approach and I, you know, it's, it's not the same as, as, you know, when you're, what you, that we have in the, in the, in the civilian world. Um, but I think that quote by McChrystal and that attributed to McChrystal's organization is really indicative of the kind of 
any organization wants to achieve is how do you get an, a workforce that's got such shared vision and shared values that they're self-motivated, self, you know, self-correcting, all those kind of things we seek. And, and when you can find an organization, and, and I'll be honest, the other thing is, as you well know, this doesn't come from a single leader. A single leader can begin to set direction, but you've got to get a team of leaders around that all buy in together on that process. And once you have that, it can really become powerful. And, and I, you know, um, Stan McChrystal is a kind of a hero of mine in terms of some of the things he's done and his, his, you know, his ability of applying things that he learned and, and demonstrated in kind of the high-end special operations world of the military to, to, the, to the civilian marketplace is remarkable. Um, but it's those kind of things we're, we're always striving for. That's, that's, that's what leaders have got to get to. That's what, that's what organizational leaders have got to strive for. Um, but it takes work. It takes time. Frankly, it takes a heck of a lot of engagement and risk on part of a leader to be able to allow those around him or her to allow their voices to be heard and to take those and, and to really make sure that those voices are heard and that they're valued. It's just not paying lip service to hearing from your employees. It's about taking the employee's feedback and, and applying that to the organization. And once that occurs, the organization can do some amazing things, but it starts off with this basic issue of kind of discipline, structure, and processes. You're not, this is not a gang. This is about, you know, this is, this is driven toward shared objectives. And once you have, but once you have that kind of basic discipline structure, you can empower organizations and get those kind of things and you will have amazing outcomes. Uh, whether it's military, whether it's in the, in the civilian world, whether it's in government service, whatever it is. It's a it, it's a powerful place. It's it's fun to be in that kind of environment. I I agree. It it is. Um, and and I'm excited for you that you're getting to see it in in kind of different different types of environments, uh, and probably making an impact on those organizations. Jumping a little bit, um, and it doesn't have to be Africom. Although I think you were you were there as Africom was being stood up. Is that correct? No, actually, I was there uh, several years later. Um, okay. I, there a couple iterations after, before I got there. But, um, yeah, AFRICOM's a remarkable organization and, and does some amazing work for the nation that, frankly, is a part of the world that most Americans are very un, unaware of um, and, and don't have an appreciation for, uh, for Africa. So great place to serve and a great place to culminate my career. So I won't I, – I, I guess the question is really around a leadership or project challenge – uh, that you experienced that, that you know, you've learned a lot from and, and whether it was a failure or a success uh, that you think, you know, paints a, paints a uh, worthy lesson for the audience. Yeah, no, it's, it's good. So, you know, I was the chief of staff at, at Africa Command. And one of the things we dealt with, you know, the, the U.S. combatant commands, of course, are extensions of the Department of Defense, but they, they, they applied national military strategy and national military policy to the, these areas. And so one of the things we had to do with AFRICOM is we had, you know, we had a new Secretary of Defense come in. It was Mark Esper, who's actually a West Point classmate of mine, um, you know, a guy who I, I knew as, as a cadet, who's a remarkable, you know, remarkable leader and a remarkable, remarkably talented individual. Uh, when Secretary Esper came into the Department of Defense, he, you know, he brought in some, some ideas of kind of relooking the way we had forces aligned and capabilities aligned. We had to go through a very complex review of how Military capabilities were outlined in the entire continent of Africa. For most people, they don't realize, you know, Africa is three times the size of the United States. The continental United States could fit on the continent of Africa three times over with room to spare. It's a remarkably large place. And we have on order of several thousand soldiers there at any one period of time. So a tiny number of folks in a massive location. 
Um, so we were having to do a full review of where we were, how we were aligned, how we were positioned in Africa, what our objectives were. That was a remarkably challenging because you had a number of different viewpoints on that. You had viewpoints of internal to the command. You had viewpoints, of course, from organizations like the Department of State. You had, you had viewpoints, of course, from the political, you know, the body politic, if you will, that had views on this process. And all of them had to be reviewed and you had to work through this piece of, a, you know, teasing out what's the, what's the eventual, if not optimal, the best feasible solution to how we're going to array ourselves in Africa. What are the priorities? Um, I work for a guy uh, who's still in command there. Uh, General Steve Townsend was my boss there at the time. Who I, again, a remarkable American and a great leader who was able to kind of guide our way through that. But as a chief of staff, it was really, it was an interesting organization because chiefs of staff typically don't, you know, you're, you're, not, in, you're not in charge, but you're, you're required to kind of synchronize all the tools of, of what's occurring. Um, so I found that as, it, you know, it's, it's, it's akin to being a project manager in many ways on kind of an Uber scale. And yeah. so I found that was a remarkably educational and challenging environment to go through, um, dealing with a variety of different agendas, trying to come up with something that met all of them. And ultimately, frankly, we're rooted on the issue of trying to stay aligned with what our strategic objectives were on the continent of Africa. Um, I would tell you that's an effort that's ongoing today, so it's not completed. You know, like most, most projects, they often don't end. <laughs> they just kind of transition phases, and that's yep. one that is transition phases. It's kind of, it's kind of what I would say the sustainment phase um, until we go through another kind of whole review of strategy. So, but, but great, great learning experience for me and a in a place in the world that I've come to appreciate in many ways. Uh, what was the, uh, kind of random question, but what was the most uh, eye-opening part of what's going on in Africa and how it relates to national strategy, if, if you're allowed to talk about it? Yeah, no, it's just, uh, first of all, you know, Africa is a remarkably diverse continent. I mean, in the sense that it, it's got, obviously, you know, 50 some nations on the or 30 some nations on the continent of Africa, but at the same time it has you know massive geographic shifts from the Sahara Desert to the to the lush areas of, of southeastern Africa. Um, at the same time, it has a massive amounts of economic opportunity. I mean, markets that are untapped right now, uh, but have massive requirements of infrastructure and inst institutional development. Uh, what's also, frankly, for most Americans not realized well is how vested the Chinese, one of our, you know, probably our peer competitor, are on the continent of Africa, as well as the Russians. So Africa, in many cases, uh, is a continent where the, the ongoing challenge between great powers is, is, is playing out in a, in a non, in a competitive way, um, not, not in a, in a, not in a, a lethal way. Um, but it's, it's an area where the United States, in my view, has should look to invest and support because you've got a very young population across the continent of Africa, massive market share, amazing degree of, of critical natural resources that are needed in, the, in today's economy, not the least of which are rare earths, of course. You know, those, those are huge issues. And frankly, um, quite honestly, in my view, we're getting, we're getting outcompeted in Africa by the Chinese and to some degree by the Russians. And it's an area where I think the United States has got to orient its focus over the next 10 to 15 years as we become refocused on the challenge that both those two, uh, those two great powers have, um, you know, against this country. So um, remarkable. That's, that's, that's a great quick little education. I'm, I'm tangentially aware, but I think that's yeah. good insight. 
Inspiring People in Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE-verified, service-disabled, veteran-owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people in places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. Jump into some rapid-fire questions. Is there any current event, uh, public policy, or, or nonprofit uh, that you're involved in outside of kind of your day-to-day strategy work? Yeah, you know, I'm, so I sit on a board of an organization called the Big Red Barn Retreat, and, and the Big Red Barn Retreat is a is an organization here in the Columbia, South Carolina area that focuses on veteran and first responder post-traumatic growth, and we offer services there for uh, for both veterans and first responders all aimed this idea of, of cultivating and facilitating post-traumatic growth as opposed to, you know, just dealing with post-traumatic disorder, if you will. Um, and I'm, I'm really privileged to, to sit on that board and watch the great work they do for, for folks who I feel very strongly about, uh, veterans, of course, but increasingly first responders. And I, and I, I would offer the first responder community has been an underserved community in this area for many, many years. And, and the, you know, the, you just watch the last several years what's happened with police work and firefighters. Um, it's easy to see that, that those organizations need this kind of service. And so I'm really, uh, really privileged to be able to work with a great team of folks out there that provide that here really regionally for kind of the, for South Carolina, North Carolina, and Georgia. Um, so it's, it's been a lot of fun to stay involved and be involved with some folks who really feel passionate about that, that area of helping veterans and first responders. Random comment associated with that, you know, as as we look at um, organizational cultures and you talked about one of the levers we get to pull is appreciation as a country, we get to pull those levers. And I think the Vietnam era veterans did a very good job advocating for OEF, OIF, welcoming us home, ensuring that, you know, support the warrior if you don't even if you don't support the war, all of that. Uh, that we created this this great appreciation. I mean, the NFL you know, has turned it into a, a business to some degree, yeah. supporting military, and uh, I, you know, we as a country just don't appreciate those first responders uh, as much as I think we ought to. I, I give you a factoid that I'm not sure I you know I haven't validated, this, but I've been told this. So I've been told that there are roughly 18,000 police departments across the United States at the local you know local state level. So 18,000 organizations that deal with law enforcement, um, and they and they generally are separate organizations. And so unlike the military, where we have kind of economies of scale and the ability of dealing with our employees and putting together programs that are tied to resilience, mental health, and those kind of things. It is rare to find police departments, let alone fire departments, that have the time and the money to invest in those kind of services for their workforce. There are exceptions. I expect the big with the New York City Police Department, the Los Angeles, they're the right. big cities. But you look at you know, the local and the county level where they're stressed on dollars. I mean, so their, their officers are undergoing massive amounts of trauma on the streets every day, dealing with issues that should be supportive of mental health that they're having to deal with, you know, kind of with domestic violence issues. Uh, and these young officers and, and firefighters are dealing with this all the time. Um, and that's an area I think that we don't recognize how much they put up with because, again, they don't have the support mechanisms. So it falls to the nonprofit community, in my mind, to be able to fill that void in many cases. And I'm, I'm fortunate the organization I work with here does that here locally. And we have a, a, a very close partnership with, uh, with some, of the, some of the local police departments and growing with some of the local fire departments here to provide those capabilities for officers that need those services 
that can't get them easily within their uh, within their departments just because of the, the you know the, the the price points and the lack of kind of economies of scale that you have with something as large as the U.S. military. Yeah, it, it, same goes for training dollars. I mean, we I, I don't think a week would go by where we didn't have some kind of resiliency hour training or whatever in the military, and and they just don't have the resources to be able to commit their manpower to those training sessions. They really don't. And it's, it's, you know, but it's a, you know, if you think about, you know, you look at our, just using police as an example, I mean, they're in yeah. cool contact every day. Um, you I know. know. And they're doing amazing work, but boy, they, um, the, the price they pay is a steep one in terms of individuals, families, et cetera, which, and I don't know the statistics, but you know, you, you can probably surmise that, you know, police officers, career longevity is often, you know, shortened, not because initially, not because they, they're, injured or hurt, but often because it is, they just can't deal with the, 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 the mental trauma anymore. They've got to move off to something else. So um, I think that's a, that's a challenge we've got to face in this country it in terms of how to support those folks who are increasingly subject to, uh, to an environment where they're being placed to provide services that, in my view, should be provided, you know, could be provided elsewhere, particularly mental health. I mean, they're, they're dealing with, you know, mental health crises on the streets every day, and that's a function of a broader issue in terms of how we deal with the issue of, um, of mental health. But um, but helping those folks through a nonprofit community, I think, is a uh, is is righteous work for uh, I certainly find it uh, satisfying to be able to involve, be involved in that. Yeah, I agree. We'll make sure we uh, link to the Big Red Barn. Yeah, um, please do. Favorite quote. Yeah, favorite quote. Um, you know, I'll tell you the the quote that you've heard this one before. The one that it comes to my mind is the is the the man in the arena quote by Teddy Roosevelt. It's it's one of those ones that I've found is amazing. You know, it's it's not the critic that counts. Yeah, not <laughs> that's it. Not the man who points out the strong man stumbles where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does not actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasm, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows at the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails knowing that he that daring greatly so, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. I've found that an amazing quote over the years because it speaks to so much about the people we work with in, in the business that I've come from. And I think the same for folks in industry who are risk takers and entrepreneurs, um, the ability to put yourself out there for something and being willing to kind of suffer the, the risks that come with that. <laughs> um, it's a quote that I haven't necessarily lived up to personally, but it's one that I strive to emulate when I, when I can. Uh, I don't know about that. Any leadership position, you're, uh, you're putting yourself out there. So I, I think you are living up to it. Um, must read book. Must read book. Okay. Um, uh, the one, the one that, at least for me, and it's a novel of all things, um, and, okay, and it's one, it's it's kind of a classic in the leadership field, at least for me. It's called you know, it's "Once an Eagle" by Anton Ryer, um, written in 1968. Has two main characters: Sam Damon, who's kind of the the humble, you know, kind of protagonist, if you will, uh, and Courtney Massengale, who's the careerist soldier who works his way through his career, and, and there's two. He's the protagonist or the antagonist rather. Um, so Once an Eagle is one I'd recommend. It's a great leadership book. It's about human character. And I found it's one that I've uh, always recommended to folks that I've worked with to read. And in fact, I gave it my, my gave it as a copy to my son when he was commissioned. Say, if you read nothing else, read Once an Eagle. 
I appreciate it because I have not read it. I think I heard of it at one point in time and for, for whatever reason. So I'm going to order it today for vacation next week. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good read. You'll enjoy it. It's, 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 a, it's a fun, easy read, and it's a, based on a good novel format. If you could hang out with three people for a day, who would they be? What would you do? Um, two off the top of my head, they come to, you know, one, one would be Benjamin Franklin, of all places. I, and probably because I recently read a biography on Franklin, um, which, which I found really intriguing. Um, you know, Franklin is a bit of a renaissance man. He was an entrepreneur. He, he was a politician. He was a statesman. He was... He had an amazing repertoire of skills, and I would love to pick his brain on in, and how he journeyed through life. Um, I think another might be, this comes back to my profession, is uh, Ulysses S. Grant, um, who really was the, you know, the led federal forces in the Civil War. And he gets a lot of buzz for what he did against Robert E. Lee toward the end of the war in, in Virginia Appomattox, but where, where U.S. Grant was remarkable is really his operations in the Western theater. And when he worked up, up down the Mississippi River toward the siege of Vicksburg, um, and that, in my mind, his ability of making decisions and under adversity and taking calculated risk um, was just amazing. Just as an aside, he also wrote what I think is one of the great pieces of uh, military literature, his memoirs that he published uh, you know, just shortly before he died in the 1870s, which at the time were a bestseller. Um, which, to my mind, remain one of the great sets of memoirs in terms of objectivity, self-critique, and this kind of self-analysis um, that I would recommend to anybody if you want to wade through a long set of memoirs, which reads surprisingly current for the for the time. It's amazing. Well, I was, so. I, I, you saying it makes me want to read it because I think I think it was required reading in Mill Art back at at West Point, and the 21 year old or 20 year old that was reading that just was like in survival mode, not appreciating any of the self-reflection. Yeah, I don't uh, think I read any, probably... I don't think I read any of value when I was at West Point. I couldn't survive it. It's been the years since, but uh, yeah, uh, Grant's memoirs are worth the read. Um, but Grant and Grant and Franklin for sure. And I think the third, if you have to be pressed for a third, you know, it actually um, might be a guy who some of your listeners may not be familiar with is Malcolm Gladwell, who's wow. a, uh, uh, you know, who's, who's just an amazing viewer of the human the human condition. Written a couple of great books. Blink, of course, is one. The Tipping Point is another. Um, Malcolm Gladwell is an amazing individual who observes human behavior and can can kind of translate that into a narrative form, which I find really compelling. So maybe the third guy be Malcolm Gladwell. Awesome. Um, legacy. You're in this transition. You, you've been a soldier, uh, you've been a leader, you, you've obviously been successful as a father. What do you want to be remembered? Um, you know, at the end of the day, I think we, you know, I think at the, end of the, day, the first thing I remember for is what your, is your legacy, is your family. I mean, in my case, I've been, I've been blessed with a, you know, with a wonderful marriage and three really remarkable kids who I'm very proud of, as I mentioned. So that's kind of the first thing. I, I think the other piece, though, is um, I... I feel privileged to be able to serve for 34 years in uniform, and my hope is that you know I've been able to touch some individuals through that, that course of my service that you know they've succeeded. Um, I, you know, I'll give you one example. I, I commanded a um, I commanded a brigade combat team in combat, and um, 
you know, you often talk about this may be another piece of, of leadership. I, I think the real legacy of a leader is not necessarily what he or she does, it's how well their subordinates do in the future. And so your legacy is really the generation that follows you or the generations that follow you. Follow you. In my case, I was very fortunate that, um, you know, I had like, I think seven lieutenant colonels that were my direct reports, if you will, when I was a colonel. Um, and of those seven, six of them went on to command brigade level organizations of their own. Um, they were immensely talented in their own right. I'd, I'd like to think that I was able to help them a little bit and set the conditions for their future success, but um, I'm immensely proud of that. And I think, you know, we always want to have a legacy in terms of, you know, what those around us have done in terms of their performance in the future. Um, not necessarily what we did for the organization. It really comes sometimes a generation or two later. So hopefully some of that um, has worn off to some folks that I've been fortunate to serve with over the years. I couldn't agree more. Uh, probably a great way to end, but any, any other challenge to our audience or, or parting words for, uh, for our listeners? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, as, I, as I've kind of gone through one career to another career transition, what, what, what amazes me is some of the commonality of challenges. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we've lived through this world, particularly you and I and, and folks of our age. Um, this idea of, you know, this, you've heard it before, this idea of being, you know, digital immigrants and digital natives. You know, we're living through a transition of information age and what that means in terms of how decisions are made, how we trans transmit information to one another um, and how we're, how we're influenced. So what I find, that's a, that's a challenge I think we're all having to deal with both in industry and societally is this transitional process of moving from an environment where we were operating at the speed of information at one pace and tempo, now much more quickly, much more connected and, and I watch generationally um, how people that I work with who are, who are younger than I am, who are, quote, the digital natives of the, of the world, if you will, how they deal with it. And I think we're going to work our way through that over the next 15 or 20 years, but it's going to have profound impacts in the way businesses make decisions. It's going to make, have profound impacts in the way businesses prioritize their investments. Um, and, and I think that's a, that's a common challenge we're all going to have to face. And it's not just in, it's not just in industry, of course. It's in it's in you know, government, it's in national security issues, it's in international relations, all that is coming together in a hyper-connected world that we're going to have to deal with until we sort this all out. I think we will eventually, but we're very much in the kind of the rocky transition of kind of working our way through a, a pace and tempo that 20 years ago, you know, we didn't even, we couldn't envision. And, and now it's every day. And I think 20 years from now, we're going to be a different place and place than we are today on that. So, but I think we're all going to live through that process. Um, us, our children, and to some degree, our grandchildren are going to live through that process. Um, but it confronts us, I think, in every aspect of what we do in society and certainly in business. So it's, um, it's going to be kind of interesting to watch and it's fun to kind of surf that wave, if you will, while we're going through it. I agree. Uh, sir, where's the best place for people to connect with you? LinkedIn? Yeah, that's probably the best place. I'm, I'm, I've got a LinkedIn profile, uh, Todd McCaffrey on LinkedIn, and uh, I respond to messages on there. So happy to Happy to connect with folks if they're interested, and I'd love to engage folks in, in conversations. Awesome. Sir, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate your insight and uh, your experience and taking the time to, uh, to talk with us today. Thanks, BJ. Really appreciate the time and wish, best you, wish you the best of luck with, uh, with you and your team. Thanks so much, sir. Hey, everybody, if you're enjoying this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants. Be sure to visit our website at www.mcfaglobal.com 
and sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch with the projects we're involved in, the clients we're helping, and the job openings that we are hiring for. Until next time, thanks so much. Have a great week and a great weekend.